0: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary Untold, Operation Flagrant Foul. I did something that was stupid and unfathomable. I had a great job, great family, nice house, great cars. Man, did I fuck my life up. Today, we're talking to director David Terry Fine. Basketball referee Tim Donaghy worked his way through the ranks to become an elite official in the NBA. He and a friend from high school began placing bets on games he officiated. Soon, Donaghy's picks were watched by organized crime and eventually the FBI. It unfolded in a scandal that threatened to take down the league. Was Donaghy merely using his inside knowledge of the game to win bets, or was he influencing the outcome to make money? It all came together in a sting known as Operation Flagrant Foul.
1: People wouldn't have trusted the game anymore. Every time their team lost, you blame it on the official, whether it was right or wrong.
0: Once you lose integrity, it's difficult to get it back. And I'm joined now by director David Terry Fine. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: What was it about the story of Tim Donaghy that you thought would make for a great documentary?
1: Um, There's a lot of elements of of Tim's story. Uh, I think what's, you know, sort of consistently been contextualized as the Tim Donaghy story is really a lot bigger than Tim Donaghy. Uh, And what's tricky is that that has been kind of his way out. To sort of point to the broader forces uh, involved. And so I, I was interested. I mean, I remember when the, the scandal broke. I'm an NBA fan through and through. Um, working on the stock has certainly made that more problematic. But, you know, there was always a sense that the story that we were getting at the time wasn't full and that everybody wanted to protect their own narrative. And I was really drawn to an opportunity to sort of mash up a bunch of that he said, she said into one film and and give an audience a chance to make up their own mind.
0: How was he convinced to talk to you about this in this documentary?
1: I, I can tell you that when I came on and he was already there and we met for the first time, I, I told him, you know, what I tell him every time, which is that we're going to get all the angles that we can, that this isn't just about you, but also that we're not making a puff piece here far from it. And we're going to tell your story warts and all. And he was receptive to that at at the time. So
0: a lot of people have dreams of making it to the big leagues. And it seems like the same goes for officials, which is something I didn't know. But that's true, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Tim was in the CBA for many years, which is, you know, a, a stepping stone to get into the NBA. You know, it, you're in, uh, you know, these these smaller market cities and, you know, certainly refining your skills as uh, as a referee, but really with your sights set on making it to the big show, which which is the NBA, of course.
0: How long is a typical career for an NBA referee? Like, did he have a long-term future ahead of him had this not happened?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean... And I think that's part of what's so devastating for him, looking back and reflecting on some of his choices you know during that time is that he'd still be in the league right now, you know um the the people who he came up with in the CBA uh, and just early years in the league, most, if not all of them, are still there, so he could he could definitely be there and not only still be there, but the longer you're in the league, the more respect you gain, the more opportunities you have to ref games deeper and deeper into the playoffs and, you know, ideally in the finals. And that's, as Tim says in the film, both more respect and more money. So yeah, it's, I'm not sure exactly how long a typical NBA referee career is, but I'm confident he'd still be there had it not been for his transgressions.
0: So there's this recurring theme about there being a set of rules, but a comfort with kind of selectively applying those rules. And we hear from the beginning that NBA officials aren't supposed to do gambling of any kind, yet Donaghy and other referees placed wagers on other sports in casinos. If there had been more enforcement of that rule, the gambling rule, or the referees had made it important among themselves, um, Donaghy might not have done what he did, Right.
1: Um, it's an interesting thought experiment. You know, I, I guess the the real answer is nobody knows. Um, I certainly don't. I think that's plausible. I, I think that the sort of culture of permissiveness around here are the rules, but we're going to look the other way certainly played an enabling role for him. Talking to people, his best friends about what he was like in high school. I think Tim was always somebody who push the boundaries. So whether he would or wouldn't have gotten into the same kind of hot water, I I don't know. But you know, you know, those people in your life who sometimes are really, really fun, but also um, maybe are really fun because they're willing to take the chances that you're not. That's always kind of the, the vibe I've gotten from my time with Tim.
0: It was really interesting to me that, you know, sort of the supporting players here were guys he went to high school with. And and you can't tell this story without them. And you were able to talk to two of Donaghy's Confederates in this scheme. Uh, let's talk about Tommy Martino. He almost seems like a kind of an unlikely conduit between Donaghy and the gambling world. I mean, they were like best buds, like from way back in the day. Can you just talk about him a little bit?
1: Uh, I I can't talk about Tommy without laughing and smiling. He's one of the warmest people I've ever met, genuinely. One day when I was in first grade, this bird took a shit on the pole. And I'm thinking to myself, I wanted to taste the bird shit.
0: So I tasted the bird shit. I felt like this out-of-body experience, and I knew I did something wrong. Maybe early on, I had a penchant for risk taking.
1: Everybody told me I was going to love him, and then I did. And (laughs) I I like to think the—I mean—and I'll say it, it: my personal feelings about subjects are not the point of the film or any film that I work on. And with Tommy, it was a challenge in some ways to like. Put aside the warmth that I felt for him as a person, ultimately, I had uh, just brilliant help from an editor named Dylan Hayes, who didn't meet Tommy in person and so had none of that sort of personal in-person warmth to, to draw from. And oh, and you know, back to, back to Tommy, you know I think he's someone who makes everybody feel special you know baba james batista the other person involved in the in the scheme says that tommy is his best friend tim donaghy says that tommy is his best friend you know it, it, i and i got the impression that there are probably dozens of other people out there who feel like tommy martino is their best friend just cuz that's kind of the influence he has but then on the other side of that there's there is a sense that because he is so so warm and gracious and kind that you kind of wonder what he can get away with mm. based on you know cultivating that impression or i mean cultivating you know maybe makes it seem a, a bit too premeditated and not like him and i think the truth uh, of this is that we only get a small sample size with the people that we make films about right i'm not going to pretend like i really know who he is uh, i only spent a handful of days with him Well,
0: I'm going to let you off the hook as far as Tommy goes, because I found him incredibly (laughs) likable. I mean, I was watching this with my husband and I was like, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy, too, to some extent. But I just kept every single time Tommy was on the screen, I was like, I love this guy. Like he that comes through. And, you know, it's almost like when he tells his story, my BS meter is not going off left and right the way it very often does when people tell their stories, because it doesn't seem like he has a lot at stake. (laughs) <laughs> you know, for like lying a lot. And and he's looking like, I don't know, there's just something very, very compelling about him. Uh, but I do want to talk about Batista. He was the guy who ultimately handled the, the big bets. And some people implied in the film that he was dangerous and some others implied that he was just charming. Um, and I'm wondering about your impressions of him.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy, when we were meant to sit down with him the first time, Was a no show. We went to Delaware County, spent some time with Tommy. We were meant to sit down with Jimmy. He didn't show up. We ended up doing the interview later on. So from the beginning, I felt like he was someone who was circumspect about telling his story. You know, he wanted assurances about the way he would be portrayed. That raised concerns for me, you know, just around to what degree I was going to get the straight sauce, which I don't know that I've ever said straight sauce in my life. That's really weird that I just said straight (laughs) sauce. But my impression when I did finally sit down with him is that he is so deeply emotionally affected by this story that I, I don't know how much processing is going on. It's so emotional for him that when he's talking about it, There's just words flying out. Any sporting event that we can get inside information on, college football, college basketball, NBA, we didn't care what league it was. If it was two fucking cockroaches, it's about getting the right information. And I had a good personality to get information out of people on a one-to-one basis. It makes it hard for me to believe that what he's saying is uh, like a premeditated lie. At the same time, he's been doing this a really long time and has been in this world and and working with people. <laughs> this is a good, I don't know, I'll tell this story. In the middle of the interview, he basically told me that I had blown it, that I had missed an opportunity to ask a question that would have unearthed more information that was important to the story. And like kind of like got on my case about it. it, was like yelling at me. Like a lot of our interview, we were basically yelling at each other. And it's just he's, he's so passionate about the story. Now, is he passionate about the truth or is he passionate about making sure everybody believes his version? I, I continue to feel like that's actually not my place to say.
0: Well, both things can be true. He can be passionate about people believing his version, and maybe his version is true. And, you know, that makes me think there's a couple of times where you jump in to point out discrepancies in the story. The first is when we hear about that meeting at the Marriott. Uh, Each of the three guys remembers it a little bit differently. Can you just remind listeners what the discrepancies are in the memories of that meeting?
1: Yeah, so it... The meeting at the Marriott is when they, they kicked off the scheme, the three of them. Donaghy had been betting on his own games prior to that, but not with Batista directly. And Batista really wanted to sort of take over that business on his own and, and control this incredible asset in the betting world. At the Marriott, essentially, it all hinges on Donaghy's contention that had Batista not have threatened him, he would never have bet with Batista.
0: Tommy goes to the bathroom. I was alone with Batista. He says, you don't want us calling the NBA and telling them what you've been doing. Worse yet, you don't want somebody from New York visiting your wife and kids in Florida.
1: And when he said that, I was scared. And Batista says that he never threatened him. Batista says that you get further in life treating people well with honey, as he says. Tommy's thing was like, I don't remember going to the bathroom. Uh, I don't remember leaving the two of them alone together. And I don't think of Batista as the kind of person who would threaten people. (laughs) You know, and it's really hard to make heads or tails of the whole thing, right? It did feel to me for a long time like Tommy was essentially trying to tread this very delicate middle ground between two people um and not piss either one off too much. It's unclear to me other than just wanting to be generally likable what's at stake for Tommy in that. Like I don't understand why he would want to cover for either or both of them. It it has always felt to me in stepping into this project like I can't take a side and I and I don't want to that the best mm. version of this movie is to let people speak for themselves to organize it in an interesting way so that the story really moves and people are captivated by it, but to really let the words of of the people involved sort of allow the audience to make up their own mind.
0: Donaghy said that when he started betting on basketball games, he was using only inside information can you explain why it was important for him to claim he bet on the games but didn't do anything to influence the outcome that it was just that inside information he was using mm.
1: yeah i mean there's there's different different thoughts on what the potential legal ramifications of fixing a game or you know <laughs> fixing is a is a tough word right because everybody has a different line for what it means to fix, and so it's it it kind of has run its course in terms of its usefulness in some ways because unless you're operating on a shared definition of what it means to fix a game you know you're having a different conversation with everybody but you know I've talked to some people who feel that essentially if it were to come out that he was actively changing the calls that he would have otherwise made to benefit his picks then the teams the franchises affected would have had recourse to claim damages, and that Mm. that could have stretched back years. And, you know, Mm. all of a sudden, you know, these teams, some of whom are already frustrated with the league, you know, based on the perception that because they're in a smaller market, or they don't bring in as much money, that they don't get favorable calls already, that all of a sudden, you know, they... You have even sort of more of a case to, you know, essentially, you know, sue the NBA and say, we should have won this game. Had we won this game, we would have maybe made it to the playoffs. That would have been, you know, tens of millions more dollars for us.
0: Right. So what we hear, though, in your documentary is that, though, if he is choosing a team, if he's made a pick, that even if he's not doing anything active or he doesn't think he's doing anything active earnestly, if that is his pick, even maybe like subconsciously, he could be making calls that influence the outcome. So what I wonder is, is there any way to prove that he didn't, if in fact he didn't? Because I can't figure out a way you could prove that.
1: Absolutely not. Yeah. No, there's, there are times, I guess, when I sit down with people where I momentarily like con myself into believing that I can, in the short amount of time I have with them, understand them differently than anyone ever has. <laughs> and then I ask a question and they start talking and it's immediate, like my, my fantasy is immediately erased. I've read so much about the math behind this, um, you know, the, the percent, the, the, the chances that he wasn't actively uh, manipulating the outcomes of these games by making calls in favor of his bets. And, you know, depending on the source, Most of those analyses say that he had to have been manipulating the calls, right? But is that a sure thing? No way. We we will never never really know.
0: One of the things you did was have Donaghy watch video of certain games in his career, including his NBA debut. You're watching him as he watches that. What did you pick up on as he was watching himself referee that game?
1: That he misses the game. He misses Mm. it so much. And and this is another thing that I, I think is maybe not lost, but rarely talked about. He was an exceptional referee; like he was really, really good at it. Which you know, many people have sort of postulated that that's maybe why he could do this, and this is why we can't point to moments and say, "Look, he," you know, "that that's a manipulation," right? Because he understands the flow of the game, and and I don't mean to bring this up just to say you know, Tim was manipulating games, because I don't know that he was. I just want to say that he was really good at what he did. And I think that he, he knew it. And he had a lot of people's respect, that his respect in the league grew and grew and grew. And that, you know, to your earlier question, like, would he still be in the game now? I think had this not happened, he'd be one of the most revered refs in, in the game.
0: You interviewed Kim Strupp Donaghy, Tim's ex-wife. If anyone had an axe to grind against him, I would think it would be her. How do you explain to a five-year-old that their dad's going to prison, you know? <laughs> I told them that dad made a mistake and he took some money and he wasn't supposed to. So he had to go to timeout camp. Did she seem to have a more empathetic telling than you were expecting? Because that's how I felt about it, watching her.
1: You know, to, to both of their credits, I we told... Tim when Kim said that she would be in the documentary. Obviously Kim knew that Tim was a part of it. They don't talk much. I think they talk sort of when they need to about their kids and because their kids mean a lot to both of them. They both drew a, a line and, and said, you know, it doesn't work for us and it's not good for our, our family and our kids if we're just badmouthing each other in a documentary, you know? So Kim and Tim shared things with me offline, you know, away from cameras about their relationship, never in a harsh or negative tone, just like things that happened that were difficult or upsetting. But they drew a line and said, look, this this isn't part of the movie. And and we respected that because that wasn't really the story we were telling.
0: So looming over the whole scandal is the NBA itself, Against Agent Phil Scala's wishes, the FBI approached the NBA, revealed the gambling scheme, and hoped they'd be a partner in solving the problem. But of course, the league wanted to do it their way. I'm wondering, would cooperating with the FBI have been better or worse for the NBA?
1: <laughs> oh, um, you know, it's my, my heart skipped a beat. It's like we're talking about organized crime, and and yes, I I think that um, there's much to be scared of there, but the financial and lobby power of a corporation like the NBA scares me far more. Mm. I I think that anything beyond Tim Donaghy as a compromised ref would have been worse for the NBA. And I Mm. think- aiding the FBI in this investigation into other 'er ne'er-do-wells within the ranks of the NBA would only have been bad for the league.
0: So an internal report found that 53 of around 60 NBA referees self-reported that they gambled, even though they weren't supposed to be gambling. And Donaghy had extensive communication during this time with one other ref who was cleared. So... Can you blame sports fans who are suspicious of claims that it was Donaghy alone who was doing this?
1: No, not not at all. Um, I think that um, the extent to which other referees were gambling is not a good indicator of the number of other referees who may or, or may not have been giving picks on NBA games to bookies. I can imagine a world in which a lot of NBA refs to blow off some steam or to relax in between, you know, days on, go to the casino, have a drink or two and play some blackjack. I think that's a far cry from giving a pick on Memphis versus, you know, the Lakers. Like that's, that's a a, a very long bridge that they would have to cross between those two things. So, you know, it, it always struck me that, you know, th- there's a moment in the movie where Batista gets really, really upset. And he's like, you know, did Phil... Did
0: Phil and the fucking boys go into them? Uh-uh. Why? Big Daddy Stern said, put this bitch to bed.
1: Put this bitch to bed. Right? Mm. And that follows him talking about all of these refs who, in the Petowitz report, which was the NBA commissioned report on, you know, this, this problem, found that 52 refs admitted to, to gambling at casinos. But to me, like they're not really connected. You know, yes, it's a breach of league policy for these refs to be betting at casinos, but I don't necessarily think it's indicative of other refs betting on NBA games.
0: So, after a century of decrying gambling and holding it at arm's length, the major sports leagues are now making lucrative deals with fantasy leagues and sports books, and this includes the NBA. Is it fair to say that the league is against gambling unless they're getting a piece of the action?
1: <laughs> um, well, I think the NBA would say that they were never against gambling. They would say that they were against gambling sort of within their own ranks. I don't think that you can really be against gambling if you have a major stake in a professional sports team because. Whether it's legal or illegal, gambling has always been a massive part of sports. The extent to which Jimmy Batista's business might be gutted by gambling being broadly legal, he's pivoting to a crypto based sports book. And, you know, this profession or this sort of barnacle onto the game <laughs> that is gambling is has been around a long time and i'm very confident that the leagues know that and you know in an effort to please ownership and players and keep money coming in and stay profitable it it always felt like it was only a matter of time before these partnerships became became real i think what mm. what really troubles me the most is the argument that the nba is interested in increasing transparency And that's the reason, you know, like this has been a, this has been below ground and we're just helping to bring it into daylight. It's like, no, Mm. this was a giant market. You were barely, barely capturing some of it. And now you're capturing a ton of it.
0: So there's an interesting jump in at the end when you're talking to Tim Donaghy about how he makes a living today. He makes a comment about the optics of his lifestyle, and it leads to a question about whether he reported all the money that he earned.
1: It's only problematic if if you made more money than you say you did. Right. Right? Sure. Did you make more money than you said you did? I
0: don't know. In a follow-up interview, you ask the question again. I don't recall saying that. If I said that, maybe I didn't understand the question.
1: Okay. Did you make more money than you said you did?
0: Absolutely not. What was it about his first answer that made you want to show the audience that you asked that question a second time? Hmm.
1: The way that he answered it the first time, when he, he says, I don't know, I said, did you make more money than you said you did? And he said, I don't know and then he just leaves it at that. And it's it was sort of a chilling moment because he had really had an answer for everything else and he kind of just let that hang there and he gave me this look like that's the end of that and you'll never know, but there was also I also felt sort of baited by it like you'll you'll never know. I don't know, you'll never know. And it was it it stood out to me so much and I I really, I struggled with whether to include it or not. And ultimately, it didn't feel right. It was either both or or neither. It didn't feel right to include the first one without giving him another chance to answer that question again and to to remind him of that moment and say, look, this was a weird moment, but you told me before that you didn't know. Like, it struck me as strange, right? Like, that, that didn't seem like the way our interview was going that day. And when I asked him the second time, he said, you know, I, I must have not understood the question, which to me was like, he seemed like he really understood the question the first time, but was also mm-hmm. had, and this is true of so much of what Tim says, this sort of undeniable, even if it's small, sometimes very small, but this undeniable air of plausibility, just because everything else he had given me in that first interview was nothing like that, right? And so then when I circle back to and I give him the, the opportunity to answer the question again, he says, absolutely not, which is like what I would have expected the first time, right? So I think the reason that we ultimately decided to include it is because how much can we ever get to the bottom of something and really understand the truth of something if the people who are telling us about it haven't even really connected with the truth of it themselves? So, it's a way of leaving people in the movie with this sense of, like, okay, yeah, I understand more about this story now. I've met some really interesting characters and heard their side of it. But, like, can I, is there anything really firm for me to hold on to here? And the answer, you know, is different for everybody, but is it really firm? No.
0: Well, as a viewer, it made me feel like, as a director, you refereed a fair game, to be completely honest (laughs) with you. Um, The documentary is Untold, Operation Flagrant Foul. Uh, Director David Terry Fine, I can't thank you enough for making it. It's fantastic and for talking to me about it.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was fun.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Terry David Fine. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.